anyone get faith? Where does faith come from? What is faith? Scripture tells us that faith itself is a gift of God. If salvation is about us, it is not a gift. It is a result of work. If God sovereign and sovereignly called me, then He has sealed me. Welcome to the teaching ministry of Heritage Baptist Church in Ashland, Ohio. Each week, we bring you expository and practical teaching straight from God's Word. And now, here's Pastor Ben. This is arguably, or maybe inarguably, even for me, the most confusing sermon title I've ever written. Um, so, the, the title of this morning's sermon, we're going to be in Ephesians 3, looking at verses 12 and 13, and it's the Great Tangent Part 5, Part 1. And the reason I'm framing it that way is because I really thought I was going to wrap up the last two verses of Paul's great tangent. If you remember, he begins Ephesians 3 with a thought in verse 1, and then he goes on a tangent from verses 2 through 14, 2 through 13. And then in verse 14, he returns back from that. Brian, we good? Okay. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians 3, verses 12 and 13 is what we're going to look at both this week and next week. I will tell you this, I tried to fit this all into one sermon. And when I got done and looked at the amount that I've written, and I compose on my laptop, and I kind of have, a, after 20 years of doing this, I have a pretty good feel for when I've typed X amount of pages, how much time that turns into. If I had done all of the material today, it would have been an eight page and an hour and 15 minute sermon. So, uh, so which, which Shauna wants, she's all about that. She's like, hey, I'm comfortable. I don't have a mask on, so let's roll. Um, and I know you guys all have good box seats this week. That's something we wanted to do for you guys, just give you some nice seating. Um, but I figured you'd probably rather deal with two 30-minute messages than one hour and 15-minute message. Amen? Okay, right, just checking, just checking for future, future uh, reference. And I did purposefully leave you on quite a bit of a cliffhanger as we wrapped up last week. So let me just review if you weren't here last week or if you need a refresher. I offered a pretty um, stark thesis to the material that we covered from Paul last week. And this is what I argued. I argued that the cross of Christ is the only thing that can bring peace to human divisions. In fact, I would argue that man-made mandates, whether they are movements or new laws put into place, do nothing but further cause resentment and drive even a larger wedge between these people groups. Now, Paul understood this. Human nature has not changed in the last 2,000 years. And Paul knew in talking about the potential reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles through Christ, he knew what was actually at stake here and how large it was. It was bigger and deeper than even the century-old division of race and hate between these people groups. He knew that the unity of these two groups through Christ would send shockwaves not only through the human world, but also the principalities and powers of the spiritual places, and that unity would display the supremacy of Christ over all things. So that's what we covered when we looked at verses 10 and 11 last week. Then I closed last week's sermon by asking what I think are three very reasonable questions that were probably in some form or another on your mind as well. Okay, how does this apply to me? What is my responsibility in all of this? Is this even possible? And I asked that specifically against the backdrop of the unique time frame that we are now living in in our country. Amidst a pandemic, 
amidst a lot of tensions between races and a lot of movements that have some confusing nomenclature and some confusing verbiage, and we're not sure how to affirm or back those things. And I'll give you a quick example on this. The phrase Black Lives Matter, I completely agree with. The organization and some of the things that they stand for, I have some very, very distinct issues with. So it, it's, it's almost a trap if someone says, well, do you believe in Black Lives Matter? It's like, well, what do you mean by that? Can we have a nuanced, non-Facebook discussion about this where there's a free flow of ideas and a chance for grace? How many of you, by show of hands, have heard this new term that's come up in the last year, cancel culture? Okay. Brandon, what does it mean? Just give us a, a sentence or two on what it means. It means that regardless of how long ago it happened, if you've done anything against the current, you know, way things are moving, you're automatically fired, you lose your livelihood, you there's, yeah. no, there's no grace in those situations. Do any of you know who Montrez Hale or Harrell is? Montrez Harrell. He is a center for the Los Angeles Clippers. And he was in an altercation in a basketball game two days ago with Luka Doncic from the Dallas Mavericks. Luka Doncic is Eastern European. He's Caucasian. I think he's from Latvia. And in the midst of this shouting match, the Mikes overheard Montrez Harrell call Luka Doncic, I won't swear, but he called him an expletive, but white boy. How many of you have heard this story? How many of you think if Montrez Harrell was white and Luka Doncic was black, you would have heard about this story? Okay. Cancel culture essentially says exactly what Brandon outlined for us. As soon as someone makes a mistake, grace is removed. It doesn't matter how long ago it is. It doesn't matter how different somebody is. How many of you, for a very different reason related to cancel culture, would say what I would say, thank God Twitter didn't exist when I was in high school. I am sure I would have put my stupidity on display for all of the world to see. I'm not very active on social media, and I struggle to not put my stupidity on display for all to see when I'm in person with people. Most of you who have spent any amount of time here have heard me say these very important words to you. I'm sorry. And what I depend upon is your grace when we screw up. So I'm very, very concerned that Christians... Here, here, here's where I'm at. I'm extremely concerned that Christians don't know how to behave biblically in times of tension, particularly between racial groups, and what we fall back on is not a political, or is not a, so, a spiritual answer, it's a political and social answer. We find ourselves in a camp. And then we're in the awkward position of maybe having to defend everything that that camp does. Instead of being in a position where the gospel and the truth of scripture gets pushed to the preeminent light of all things. Amen. Is against that backdrop that I want to venture into this with you. How do we do this? How does it apply to me? What is my responsibility? Well, in order to answer this, we're going to dig into four unique Greek words. We're going to look at two this week. We're going to look at two next week. Over the course of the next two weeks, and these are the words that Paul chooses to use to describe our access to God because of our relationship with Christ and how that should change our outlook and attitudes that we face during daunting times such as these. So let us read, and then we will start to break down these first two words. So again, Ephesians 3, and today we're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. Therefore, 
I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, it is a challenging time to be a person of Christian faith in our country. There are lines being painted. There are boxes being made that we are being put into that do not fully describe or reflect the glory of the risen Savior and the gospel message and good news that comes from the cross. So Lord, particularly over the next two weeks as we wrap up Paul's tangent, this is some of the most timely messaging that we could possibly hear. Let it arm us with the mind of Christ so that we are prepared to offer an answer to the world when they reach out to us either in anger or in skepticism about how a person of faith could believe the things that they do or take certain stands and not others. I pray, Lord, that you would mature us and grow us in a way that brings your name honor and reflects the glory of the risen Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let us begin with the word boldness. That is the translation that I have in the New King James. This is from verse 12, in whom we have boldness. Does anybody else have a different word in whatever translation you are using today besides boldness? Mary? Freedom and confidence. Okay, and you're reading from NIV. NIV. Anybody have anything different that took besides boldness or freedom and confidence? Okay, so that that encapsulates all of our translations. Dan, what what does yours have? Boldly and confident. Boldly and confident. Okay, this is a really really difficult Greek word to translate out of Greek into English, and that's why you see a couple different options for it. Parisia is the Greek word, and the definition means this: freedom in speaking. Unreservedness in speech, openly, frankly, without concealment, without ambiguity, without the use of figures and comparisons. Okay, That's the working definition of this Greek word. Let me show you a couple places where it's used in the New Testament and how differently the word can be translated and still be an accurate translation. Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 24. Then the Jews came around him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Okay, so the apostles are like, listen, we think you're the Christ. If you're the Christ, tell us you're the Christ and just say it plainly. Say it directly. Answer the question. Okay, plainly. Then in Acts 10.34, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. So here we see the same word, parisia, uh, recorded in English in two fairly different ways, plainly and boldly. Are you anything like me that when you think of boldness, you think of like, like, like a confidence, an assertion, I'm going to step out, right? But you can be bold and speak around the bush, can't you? I mean, you can, politicians are, are very bold with their answers and they talk for 20 minutes and you're like, I have no idea what they're talking about, right? So in the English language, this is really tough to get this idea of these two verses, but let me try to, let me try to draw this down into a couple different conclusions and applications that we arrive from with the word parisia. So here's what I'm going to argue. Because of Christ, we don't need to mince words with God we can just shoot straight from the heart without any need for pomp or formality. One of the things that was striking in the last slide to me was 
Parisia means being able to speak without the use of comparisons. And I think one of the things, particularly in Western culture, that we do a lot when we're trying to help someone understand something is we use comparisons. We use analogies. I use them all the time from the pulpit. We, we, we talk in ways that help each other understand what we're trying to get to by giving them examples. You know, So if I were to say to Andy, and this is just a silly example, but Andy, of course, is, is you know has his own landscaping company, and I said to Andy, um, hey, listen, here's what I'm thinking about doing. I'm thinking about putting this big bubble over my riding lawnmower and then getting a window air conditioning unit like you would find in an apartment and plug it in and run it off the battery so that I can drive around in my air conditioned bubble while I mow. How useful will that be? And Andy's answer would be, it would be about as useful as an elevator in an outhouse. And all of us would understand by the use of that comparison, he is saying it is not useful at all, right? So that was an actual conversation that took place between us, by the way. So what we learn from Parisia is because of Christ, there's no need to mince words. Now, particularly in regard to no need for pomp or formality, let me ask a question that you probably are not anticipating. Why is this insane? Why is it absolutely insane that Paul tells us, Parisia, that we can speak openly, directly, and boldly to God without pomp or formality. Why is that insane, Rhonda? Because he's the God of the universe and he's all-powerful and all-knowing. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree. Anyone else want to add on to that, Jamie? Well, prior to this, it was all the Jewish background, which believed that you couldn't get to God unless it was through a sacrifice or a priest or some other form. You couldn't go directly to him. And were there specific rules? And were there very, very harsh punishments if you stepped out of line of those rules? Yes. So this is insane for both reasons that both Rhonda and Jamie brought to the table. Number one, it's insane because if there is anyone in the universe by whom we might want to take a knee and speak with a degree of formality, maybe it's the guy who created all of it, the God of the universe, maybe? Secondly, Jamie is absolutely right. Paul, as a Jew, is basically going against everything he's been taught prior to understanding the grace that is inherent in the cross. He's saying, I, a man who used to have to come to, to uh, God in this very specific, formal, outlined, rigid way. It was holy and it was God's plan. But the amount of steps, and if you don't believe me, guys, read Leviticus. Read Leviticus about the amount of rules and requirements that are present if, if Brandon's cow walks into my pasture and a lion from, that happens to be on my pasture eats his cow, there's Levitical law about how that is to be handled. Same way if Brandon's boy is killed on my property, there's a Levitical law about how to handle that. And this idea that we would go and, and, and disregard all of those things is insane. If there's any being in the universe that deserves such formality, it is God. So if Paul is telling us, Parisia, shoot straight, no use of comparison, speak your heart, shout your heart, bleed your heart before God, say it, here comes the most important thing we can take away from the definition of Parisia. What does this tell us about the amount of love that God has for us and not how we view our relationship with Him, but how He views His relationship with us. What does that reveal 
about the nature of God's eyes and his perception of his relationship with his creation. What does it suggest? Mary? He finds joy in it. He desires Huge. to have that time with us. Yeah, yeah. He finds joy in it. He desires to have that relationship with us. What else? Kathy? Yeah, yeah. The, the amount of sacrifice that he was willing to undergo so that grace could exist, so that uh, exceptions could be made, is insane. What else? In a minute, I'm going to use my own words, and it's going to be a comparison, but I hope it will clarify things for you. Jamie? I always thought of our relationship with God as an actual child to father. Like, yes, I had, you know, I was formal with my dad when I needed to be, but I never felt that there was anything I couldn't talk to him about if I needed to. You're, you nailed it. You nailed it. Is it true that we are God's subjects? True or false? True? Yeah. Is it also true that we are his children? Here's what this tells me. Here's what Parisia and its full definition tells me. It tells me that the way God views our relationship, we are his children before we are his subjects. We are his children first, whom I loved. Yes, we obey him. Yes, he is the master. Yes, he is the authority figure. But that's not the primary way that we should think about God. Because that's not the primary way he thinks about us. The primary way that he understands us is as his beloved. Now. Which of those two mindsets, God is my ruler, God is my father, which of those two thoughts is going to be more powerful to have you deal ruthlessly with your own sin, Matthew 5, two weeks ago? Are we going to be more motivated by, I'm afraid of God, or I've disappointed my father, right? How many of you have had your parents at some point in your life say that, that dreaded sentence, I'm more disappointed than I am mad? You're like, just be mad. Just be furious. Just don't be disappointed. We feel this unbelievable letdown. Mary and I make a point of asking each other difficult questions in our relationship so that we can improve and be aware. And probably once or twice a year, the two of us will go out to dinner and I'll ask this question. What is something that I do that I need to be more aware of? For like the last three years, Mary's had the exact same answer, which tells me I'm not working on it as much as I should be. And here's the answer. That is the noise that I make, sometimes involuntarily, when my wife or my children... i got to say this real carefully. <laughs> ...have done something differently than I had hoped. And what Mary has shared with me is that's the most deflating noise to our household. Is if Vea comes in and says, Dad, and I'm in the and I go, she has no motivation to want to even ask me what it was she wanted to ask me. I've already said to her, you're disappointing me. You are letting me down. Can you imagine hearing that sigh from God the Father? Because here's the difference between God making that noise and me making that noise. He's never wrong. He's never wrong. So for us to understand, this doesn't break the law before it breaks my love. This sin, this choice, 
to go against what he has called me to do is hurting the relationship. Yes, it's sin. Yes, it's punishable by death. We're not arguing that. But the initial reaction is it breaks God's joy and love that he has for his children. That should be the motivating factor. Many of you, after any amount of time with children, have this thought. I need to call mom and apologize. I need to call dad and say, I did not realize. I am so sorry. Thank you for not murdering me. Because I know I was worse than my children. Right? All right. So keep this pinned in your notes here. Before we are his children, we are his subjects. We're going to build on that. The second word that I want to look at is the word that in my translation is access. Okay, Because we have boldness and access. What other variant English words do we have in verse 12 that I have as access in the New King James? Anyone have any variant words or is it all access? Robin? Presence. Presence, okay, good. Anything else? Okay, so access, presence, that's what we've got. You should recognize this Greek word because we studied it back in Ephesians 2. Prosegagi, okay? And the definition is the act of bringing to, a moving to, access approach to God, that relationship with God whereby we are acceptable with Him and have assurance that He is favorably disposed to us. This was the word that we used in the ancient Near Eastern courts where there was an introducer in the court, somebody who would take the hand of the person coming to speak before the emperor and act as the emissary, the go-between, and say, I am here to introduce you to the audience of the emperor, and now because I have vouched for you, you have the ability to speak. So what's the connection between what we just looked at the truth on the last slide, we are God's children before we are His subjects to connect it with this. He is favorably disposed towards us. It's exactly what Jamie just said a minute ago about her relationship with her father. Yeah, there was a formality and there was a respect and there was a healthy fear of discipline, but she never felt like she couldn't go to God because, I'm sorry, couldn't go to her father because it was her father. In the same sense, we should not feel like we ever can't go to God because he is looking at us as his child whom he loves. The reason Mary is very concerned about me going is because she never wants her, or more importantly, our children, to ever feel that they can't approach me. Right? So, Dave Guzik, Dan and I have a, have a, a love-hate love relationship with Dave Guzik, um, he says something brilliant about this. He says, when conflict arises among Christian groups of different backgrounds, you can be sure that they forget that they were saved by the same gospel and that they have the same access to God. One or both groups usually feel that they have superior access to God. And isn't that really what theological pride is all about? Well, we understand baptism better than the Presbyterians. So the end result of that is we're, we're closer to God than they can be. It's, it's not their fault. They're the Presbyterians, right? And I pick on the Presbyterians because if I wasn't Baptist, I would probably be Presbyterian. So we, we do this. We play these little stratego games with our theology lining up better or being sharper or whatever that looks like in order to make ourselves feel like, well, we've got, we've got the most direct route to God. You can get there, but it's going to take you 20 minutes longer. You know, our Google Maps is very accurate. That's kind, of, that's kind of how our mindset is when we start to get into theological pride. Now, let me show you 
the only other place outside of Ephesians 2, Paul writes this word persegogi. He writes it again here in chapter 3. The only other place in all of Scripture that this word appears is again from the pen of Paul, and it occurs in Romans 5 too. By whom we also have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So this is an exclusively Pauline word. And the conclusion and the application that I think it's fair to draw from this when we combine prosegogy, access, with the idea of boldness is this. Christ has already served our introduction to God. Despite the fact that the judgment is yet to come, we are already known to God, and Christ has granted us an intimate audience with Him. Again, let me repeat a previously viewed question. Why is this insane? Why is this insane? Jared? There is nothing in that paragraph that says it's anything we've done. Absolutely. That, that, that's first and foremost. Yeah, I'm going to get to that in a minute, but this has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with a sovereign God. Does anybody see anything strange or not human about the concept of work leading to reward? Anybody here at any point in your life have a desire to attend an Ivy League? Did anybody? I don't know this. Does anybody, did anybody graduate from an Ivy League school? Anybody in high school, junior high? I want to go to Harvard. I want to go to Yale. Anybody have like dreams like that? So, yeah, me too. Me too. A little bit. When you guys are older, I'll tell you the story about how I was recruited by Harvard. It's hilarious. Um, it has to do with me cheating on a test. Um, they didn't know that. My scores were very high. They were very interested in me. Here's, now imagine for a moment that, that you get accepted to Harvard and the first day on campus, the president, the chancellor of the university presents you with a diploma. How would you react to that? Stunned. Yeah, right? Uh, I assume that one of the reasons you would want, it's probably not the only reason, but one of the reasons you would desire to graduate from Harvard is to be able to take a Harvard diploma into the workforce, right? That would be pretty powerful. Um, if I had this diploma, it's going to open some doors for me, right? Well, in the same sense, the reason this is insane is because what Paul is telling us is God has already given us the benefits of salvation in granting up access to himself. It's like enrolling on Harvard and your first day you're given a diploma. Use of comparison right there. Okay? It's the idea that you already, even though you are not fully sanctified, even though we still struggle with sin, even though we still have sinful bodies and a sinful world, the main thing that salvation accomplishes is access to God. Without salvation, you do not have access to God. And Paul is telling us with this word, persegogy, you have that now. You have that today. You don't have to wait to heaven to get to a place where you can speak with God. Christ has already made that introduction. He already intimately knows you. He already looks at you as a child of God. What should that truth keep us from doing? What should the truth that we already have access to God keep us from doing that maybe we would otherwise do. Mary? Repetitive sin. <laughs> yes, thank you. That was a... I kind of think of like classroom management and like everybody's favorite teacher. They don't have discipline practice because they want to please. 
Mm. Wow, that's a really good comparison. The first thing Mary said there was repetitive sin, right? How about rationalization of sin? You are without excuse because you have two things, two things, a minimum of two, it's more than that, two things that the unregenerate mind and heart does not have. One, you have the ability to read God's Word and have the Holy Spirit speak its truths to you. A non-believer cannot do that. They can read it from an academic standpoint, they can read it from a moral standpoint or a historical standpoint, but they do not have the aid of the Holy Spirit enlightening you to the applications of these texts and the power and the meaning of these words. Secondly, more importantly even than Scripture, you have access to God. Your prayers are never not heard. You never address God, never once, and hear God go, he always has infinite time and energy for you because you are saved. Now, Jared brought this up a second ago, but what does this teach about salvation? It has nothing to do with us. We do not earn tokens by our good merits, and then we're able to cash those tokens in, and every token is worth five minutes where God will listen to us. God will listen to us because we are His children, and His love for us never ceases when we are in the lowest moments of our life, the most shameful, the most embarrassing. I think of what Mary said, repetitive sin, the same types of sins that I've struggled with for 25 years, even though I've been a Christian for 20 of those years. Those very places, those very dark places, the light is there. And we still have access to it. So, in closing, next week I want to cover the last two words. And I promise you, at the conclusion of next week's message, I'm going to speak very directly about how does this apply to me, what is my responsibility, and is this even possible? Because... I do not want you, any of you, to forfeit your hope in the supremacy of Christ against the backdrop of how difficult it is to be an American Christian right now. In fact, I would beg you and encourage you to embrace that hope so that you see exactly what the cross accomplished on our behalf and the tools at our disposal to deal with the sinful ways of the world and to deal with the sinful ways of our own hearts. Thanks for listening to this message from Pastor Ben Roby and Heritage Baptist Church. We welcome your feedback or questions. You can find us online at hbc-ashland.com or connect with us on Facebook. If you found this message helpful, please share it with a friend or loved one. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again right here next week.